Folks, have you checked out the Irish History Podcast shop recently? Right now, I have a sale of 30% off everything when you use the code SALE30. So go to irishhistorypodcast.ie forward slash shop and get 30% off everything when you use the discount code SALE30. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Life never quite lived up to Olive Packen and Mahan's expectations. She had been the definition of someone born with a silver spoon in their mouth. Not only was she the heiress to an estate of 27,000 acres of land, but her family home, the 60-roomed Strokestown Park House, was one of the finest in the west of Ireland. She grew up surrounded by wealth and privilege, waited on by servants who took care of her every need. As a teenager, she was presented to the king at Buckingham Palace, and her wedding in the last weeks before Europe went to war in 1914, was the talk of London society. However, by the late 20th century, her expectation that she would live a life of privilege were well and truly dashed. She had managed to hang on to her family home, Strokestown Park House, but little else. Indeed, the house itself was crumbling, and most of it was scarcely habitable. She had retreated to a handful of rooms, a bed had been moved to what was once the drawing room where her family had entertained the rich and powerful in better times. The servants were also long gone. In the end, the only person left was Thomas Massey, a butler who had served the Packen and Mahans for decades and remained with Olive until the bitter end. However, his threadbare uniform was yet another sign of how things had changed. Eventually, in March 1981, Olive, at the age of 86 and in declining health, decided to leave Strokestown. Having sold the house, she went to live out her days in an English nursing home. However, her life story is captivating. The 20th century and the changes it brought were never going to be kind to a family like hers. However, the Packenham Mahans were not helped by their remarkable knack for being on the wrong side of history from the Great Famine to the Irish War of Independence. In this three-part series, we will follow Olive Packen and Mahan through her childhood and early years, living the life of an aristocrat. Then, we'll see how the outbreak of war in 1914, followed by the Irish War of Independence and Revolution, changed Ireland forever. While this left Olive with an uncertain future, she also had to contend with the consequences of her ancestors' actions, as a secret funeral in 1847 continued to haunt the Packen and Mahan family well into the 20th century. Hello and welcome to the Irish History Podcast. My name is Finn Dewar and this is Ireland's Last Aristocrat. 
The Life of Olive Pakenham Mahan. As you are about to hear, sections of this episode were recorded in Olive's home, Strokestown Park House, the National Famine Museum. You'll hear from the archivist Martin Fagan, who has unlocked many of the secrets of Olive's life, and Oshino Driscoll, a guide and historian in the house, which is now open to the public. I'd like to thank all of the team in Strokestown, and in particular Tony Aspel, for facilitating the recordings of this episode. Now, all the material recorded over what was two days in Strokestown could not fit into the final edit of this series. However, if you're a supporter of the show on Patreon or Acast Plus, bonus material from those interviews will be available for you in the coming days. If you want to get this bonus material, become a supporter today on patreon.com forward slash Irish podcast. That's patreon.com forward slash Irish podcast. By signing up, you'll also get access to my upcoming exclusive series on the Irish Civil War, which starts later in the month. I'll be joined by Dr. Brian Handy from the History Department of Trinity College Dublin for that, so it's going to be well worth checking that out. And it's only exclusively available on Patreon or Acast+. If you want to get that and all the bonus content, check out patreon.com forward slash Irish podcast. Finally, before I begin, I'd like to thank Keith Hines for the artwork. Sound was by Kate Dunlee and additional narrations are from Aidan Crow and Therese Murray. Being born into an aristocratic family in the late 19th century afforded Olive Pakenham Man a start to life that most could only have dreamed of. When I sat down to research her life, I was surprised by the way people treated her family in the 1890s. They were still almost like royalty, albeit on a local level. While her mother May safely delivered Olive into this world on September the 7th, 1894, at Strokestown Park House in County Roscommon, there was a quasi-feudal response from the local community. Custom demanded celebratory bonfires would mark the arrival of the landlord's child, and so the people of Strokestown, the village built at the gates of the Pakenham Man family home, gathered as their ancestors had done before them, to welcome a child that could well one day be the next landlord. Bonfires were lit at the four roads that led into the town. An eyewitness captured the scene. Strokestown presented the appearance of a huge fiery cross. Its four streets were brilliantly illuminated for the birth of a daughter to Captain Packenham Mahan. A huge bonfire was lit in Barron Street, right in front of the beautiful arch at the entrance gate, a second bonfire on the rectory lawn. The streets presented a gay and festive appearance as the crowd surged along cheerily like schoolboys out of school. A local fife and drum band paraded through the streets and torchbearers marched at the head of the processional. Now starting life in this way was always bound to raise expectations about what lay ahead for Olive. However, it was somewhat of a distorted picture. An astute observer would have pointed out that there was more to life in North Roscommon. The Pakenham Mans were wealthy, they were unquestionably influential, but to say that they enjoyed a complex relationship with the people of the surrounding region put it mildly. Events during the Great Famine of the 1840s had a lasting legacy. Back in 1847, it had been Olive's grandfather, Dennis Mahan, who had been the landlord of the estate at the time. Despite the fact the people of North Roscommon, like the rest of Ireland, were suffering from starvation, Dennis Mahan had pressed ahead with plans to clear the estate of its poor tenants. Initially, he had offered one-way tickets to North America, but he cut corners and costs in this. Over one-third of these tenants died en route. 
Now, this led to rising tensions, but when Dennis Mahan pressed ahead with plans to evict hundreds more families, he was, perhaps unsurprisingly, shot dead in November 1847. Now, while this assassination soured relations, it was actually the reactions to his murder that infused a bitterness that lingered for generations to come. Although Olive was only born in 1894, 47 years later, it continued to haunt life in North Roscommon at the time. You see, as news spread through the locality that the reviled Dennis Mahan had been shot, bonfires, not dissimilar from the ones that welcomed Olive into the world, were lit across the surrounding region. Olive's grandmother, Grace Packenham Mahan, had watched the family's tenants revel in her father's murder. Indeed, the funeral was a hasty affair, with mourners fearing the assassins might strike again. A shroud of secrecy surrounded the entire event. A reporter from the Dublin Herald captured the scene. The funeral was strictly private. From an early morning, inquiries were made to certain the hour the major remains would be removed to its last resting place, but there was no information given to anyone. His remains were deposited in three coffins, a shell, a lead, and outside both an oak one covered with black cloth. The vault was lit by large wax candles, and the funeral service performed by the vicar in a manner becoming the awfully solemn occasion. Olive's grandmother, Grace Packenham Mann, never forgave nor forgot these events. She left Strokestown immediately after the funeral, vowing never to return. However, the bitterness emanating from Dennis Mahan's murder was by no means limited to the Packenham Mahan family. The people of the surrounding area did not forget the famine evictions that had provoked it or the ruthless campaign to catch his killers. In trying to understand the life of Olive Packenham Mann, I spent two days in Strokestown Park House and when Oshin O'Driscoll, a historian and guide at the house, explained what had happened after Dennis Mann's death, I began to appreciate how the relationship between the local community and the Packenham Mann family was so complex. Now it's worth hearing the story from Oshin himself. Just to provide a little bit of context, after the assassination of Dennis Mann, several local people were arrested but their families were also targeted in the most brutal manner. Food was withheld from families who refused to talk to the police, including the families of those who were in prison. And this pressure was enough that one of those men eventually broke and became an informer and turned a witness against the other three. And those three were hanged shortly after. Now, interesting as this story may be, you might be wondering how an event 47 years before Olive herself first drew breath was relevant to her life. However, through her childhood, she was actually surrounded by constant reminders of Dennis Mahan's murder. While his portrait hung on the wall in Strokestown Park House, a more pressing reminder came in the form of her grandmother, Grace, or rather her absence from Strokestown. When Dennis Mahan had been shot, Grace, as I mentioned, swore she would never return to Roscommon. When Olive was born, she was hale and hearty, but living in the Isle of Wight in England and keeping her vow never to return. She would live until Olive was 20, her absence a constant reminder of the tensions that existed between tenant and landlord in Ireland. We will come back to this, but it's worth bearing in mind, while Olive may have been welcomed into the world by the people of Roscommon, her family was not as revered by all as this may have led her to believe. That said, there was no immediate threat to her family in the 1890s. The memory of Dennis Mann may have been ever-present, but there was limited social and political violence between her birth and around the First World War. 
Tensions over land and demands for Irish independence bubbled away beneath the surface, but there was little fear her father Henry might be assassinated. In these years, Olive enjoyed a normal upbringing, or at least a normal upbringing for someone of her class, which was anything but normal. This shaped her life, or at least her expectations in life, and those formative years would have an enormous impact on who she became. Now, TV series, particularly Downton Abbey, have distorted what life was like in places like Strokestown Park House. They present an image of a harmonious life where servants and the people they served, in this instance, Olive's family, the Packenham Mahans, formed one happy extended family. This was not the case. Rather than being a place where the line between the aristocracy and the working class was blurred, the opposite was actually true. Life in houses like Strokestown Park House was extremely regimented. There was no ambiguity about who was doing the serving and who was being served. Indeed, Olive's early years only reinforced notions in her head that she was superior to most people. If you visit Strokestown Park House today, you can see it in most rooms, but it was particularly striking in a tunnel beneath the house. This really crystallised the divisions in the household for me, so I want to start there. You're about to hear from Ushin, the historian in Strokestown Park House. We will take a look inside the house in a minute, but this will strip away any idea that Downton Abbey is anything other than fiction. So this is a tunnel that we're going to enter now. Um, you're going to have to stoop a bit, Finn, because it is very low. This is original to the house, so this was put in in the mid-18th century. To describe it, I mean, it is quite damp, it's very dark, the ceiling's very low. This runs from the servants' quarters, it runs right under the house, and it is eventually going to come up at the stables. So basically, when the stable hands and the other workers were getting up to go to work, they were not, under any circumstances, permitted to take the much more direct route of just going out in front of the house and walk around to the stables. No, instead, they had to go down into this tunnel, walk, there would have been no lighting at all in here then, um, and walk underground to start their day. And I mean, that's for the very simple reason that they, the family didn't want to see them. They didn't want to think about them. They didn't want, you know, servants spoiling the lovely view from the front of the house or even walking behind the house where they might be visible from the, you know, the windows inside the house. So yeah, I mean, this is, this is how the other half lived, right? This is a legacy of, particularly when the house was built, how people viewed the common folk, Irish people, the servants, you know, as something to be neither seen nor heard, to be honest, something hidden, something sort of almost like, like mechanical. That was sort of the way that the house worked and you didn't want to see how that all went on. Meanwhile, Olive and the rest of the Packenham Man family began their day in very different surroundings. One of the largest and most impressive rooms in Strokestown remains the morning room. As the name suggests, this was where they spent their mornings. This room gives you a sense of the privileged day-to-day life Olive grew up in. This single room was bigger than many cottages of the late 19th century. This is Oshin again. So this is the library, yes, as we call it, also known as the morning room. You'll notice it has these big French doors, these big windows. So this room is designed to capture lots of natural light, particularly as the sun is, ri- as the sun is rising in the morning. Uh, this room has changed very little, really, since it was last redone in the 1830s. The bookcases, for example, all date to that period. One of these, the one on the right here, is a Chinese Chippendale bookcase. So these were incredibly um, valuable and expensive bookcases that were made in London. This is 
probably one of the best uh, surviving examples of this kind of bookcase you'll see in Ireland. Now, before Oshin continues, I want to explain a bit more about the house and the staff who worked there. On the 1911 census, the house had 60 rooms. Now, you can only live in a house of this size if you have an army of servants. There were far more staff members at Strokestown than there were family members. Olive was, after all, an only child. But even if we include the regular guests they hosted, the staff was still far larger. It's not clear precisely how many there were. But if we look at similar houses, the staff would have comprised of a butler and a housekeeper at the top who oversaw an alphabet soup of different types of footmen, maids and servants, which could run into the dozens. This doesn't include the large outdoor staff from gamekeepers to gardeners. Oshin now explains why there was such a large staff. So if you think about like heating a house like this back in the 18th and 19th century would have been incredibly difficult. You couldn't heat the whole house. I mean, it's literally just open fires. So essentially, as the family went through their day, they would move around the house. So when they begin, they come down here. A servant will have already been in here getting the windows, uh, the, the blinds open, getting it bright, lighting a fire, getting it warm. And then as they move through the house, servants are moving ahead of them to get that room warm, to get that room ready. Dining has usually been the centre of life in most houses throughout history, and Strokestown was no different. But when Olive was a child, the dining room embodied the constant pageantry that was playing out in the house, that reinforced class divisions and notions that the Pakenham Mahans were superior. No, they would have used this pretty much as their normal dining room as well as when they had guests. I mean, you know, the way that they lived with all these servants, almost every day has ceremony to it, you know what I mean? Every day they're getting, almost every day is like a party in that sense. Um, they're constantly being waited on, everything's being prepared for them. But yeah, this room really is designed to, Im to impress, basically, to impress guests. You can see, unlike most of the house, it still has this beautiful, really striking, bright red wallpaper that adds to this kind of like, I suppose, lush kind of environment that's particularly contrasts against the very dark wood, very dark fine wood that you have in all the, the fittings in here. Standing in the dining room, you naturally get curious about where meals were prepared. Oshin brought me through a door at the far end of the dining room that leads to the kitchens. Once you step through this door, it's like stepping into another world. The walls are suddenly bare. The floors are functional. Stone, no carpets. The fine decoration that adorns the rest of the house vanishes. All signifiers. You're moving from the part of the house where the Pakenham Mahant family lived to the realm of the servant. Even in the kitchen, the sharp class boundaries that shape life in these houses takes the form of a strange gallery that overlooks the workspace. So you've got here, right above the kitchen, it's a very beautiful, wooden, uh, quite extensive gallery that overlooks it. And yeah, you might think this is an unusual thing. You'd expect this in a theatre, not in a, in a kitchen. But this makes sense if you think back to the 18th century. And if you're the lady of the house and you want to go check on the work, want to go supervise the kitchen or deliver a, a meal order or something, you don't want to actually step foot inside the kitchen with the servants where they might touch you or anything. So instead, you have a private staircase that leads you up to your viewing gallery where you can look down, you can watch everything, you can shout commands, you can write down your order and drop it down on the people below. So, I mean, this is really the most literal visualization of the way that people lived completely separate lives within one house. Like they never really interacted on anything like an equitable basis, you know. There's this huge emphasis on keeping people separate. And I suppose also, you know, you can see it visualizing, visually emphasizing the fact that some people are below, some people are above in this system, literally watching you 
from, from up above. And these are very rare. I mean, we know that in the houses that Richard Cassell designed in his lifetime, this is the only one where the gallery survived. Even by the 19th century, or the later 19th century, these were considered a bit much, a bit embarrassing. People didn't really use these anymore. But this one uh, managed to survive through all that time. The last major room on the ground floor, not mentioned so far, is the drawing room. This was one of the more comfortable rooms in the house and where Olive and the family would have spent a lot of time. This is the drawing room, but it's also known as the evening room. So you'll notice, I mean, for a modern house, this would be a big room for a house like this. This is small, it's intimate, it's cosy, right? This is a room where when you have a fire blazing, it's nice and warm and comfortable. And yeah, this is where the family would relax in the evenings. Of course, it's also when we say drawing room, that means basically withdrawing room. So after a party or a dinner, people would withdraw in here for refreshments, for a drink. Now, I'm not going to spend too much time upstairs or in the bedrooms where Olive spent her childhood. However, as Oshin brought me for a look around, the issue of running water did come up. It would have been during her lifetime that they got running water for the first time. It's been quoted to me that they didn't have proper running water until the 1930s. Although they may have had some downstairs, one or two taps, I would say that Olive's father probably put in, but certainly upstairs. There were no bathrooms, there was no plumbing at all upstairs until at least the the 30s. This naturally raised the issue of bathrooms. Without running water, they couldn't have flushing toilets, but the Packenham man's, like all similar families, did have servants. Every bed next to it has, you know, a discreet, specific table that's for the chamber pot, right? So there would have been chamber pots all over the house um, that would have been in use you know, uh, yeah, certainly until at least the 1930s, servants would come to empty them. If you're familiar with the chamber pots, they're basically bowls. So each morning, the servants would face the delightful task of emptying these bowls of human waste. There can have been few more humiliating tasks than this in the house. Before we move on with Olive's life, there's one more room I want to talk about that surprised me, but also helps understand the wealth and privilege of her childhood, but also how she became an intellectually curious woman. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Much of what has been discussed so far in Strokestown seems extremely antiquated, but the house at the same time embraced some of the most advanced modern technology of the day. Olive's father, Henry, was extremely interested in science and even built a laboratory to the rear of the house. He would oversee the installation of a hydroelectric generator providing the house with electricity. He built his own hydroelectric turbine. Wow. In 1911, I think it came online, the remains of it are still out behind the house. You can still, it's a little bit hard to get to, but you could see it. Um, yeah, I mean, he built it himself. It was a hydroelectric turbine. It meant that this was one of the first houses in Merskama that had electricity. It would be another 20 years before the village of Strokestown itself was connected to the grid. So this was way ahead of its time. Now, while we're in this part of the house, 
it's worth also talking about the dark room that Olive's father Henry also built. He had a keen interest in photography. There are portraits of Olive and her mother that he took, but Henry, Olive's father, also had what might be described as adult tastes in his photography. You see, because it's early, it kind of takes a while for the legal system to catch up with it. It's also worth saying that, like, you know, Henry, because of his wealth, was situated, he could put himself on the more artistic side of things. So, you know, he had books that he had bought, probably ordered. I'd say he wasn't buying them in, in, in Strokestown, but you could order them and get them delivered that are, you know, collections of artistic nude photography. And, of course, then at the same time, he was producing some of it himself um, using models. It's still unclear where these models were coming from, but there are examples of photographs that he had taken in the grounds and around the house. Martin Fagan, the archivist at Strokestown Park House, has found a coded notebook in the archive that he thinks is a reference to these photographs. In his notebooks, there is kind of cryptic writing. And I have a feeling that they represent pictures that he doesn't particularly want anyone to know what the, what the, what the content is. You can see it here. Uh, it's just kind of a series of dots and dashes and Vs and marks. I'm a little off track, but hopefully you're getting the image of a family living in splendour in North Roscommon, but also one that was very atypical. The Pakenham Mahans were not your average West of Ireland family in the late Victorian world. There's no question they were isolated from their immediate neighbours, the people of Strokestown. But as we've seen, this was intentional on their part. Indeed, Olive did not have friends or contemporaries in the local village. Socially, at least, her family inhabited a very different world. While the Packenham Mans were Irish and proud of the fact, they were deeply committed to and proud of the British Empire as well. Now this might seem a contradiction in terms in the 21st century, but it's worth remembering in her youth, the entire island of Ireland was part of the United Kingdom. Indeed, the Packenham Mans not only were proud of the British Empire, but they also saw themselves as part of the elite of the empire. So to find what they would have considered their equals, their social life was centred around London, where they would spend around six months of each year. During this time, they would have visited Olive's grandmother in the Isle of Wight, who was still refusing to return to Strokestown, but they also had a residence on Pont Street in Belgravia in London. It was this world that Olive was being raised to socialise in. She would meet people like herself, raised in the same way she had been raised, and who her parents would have considered appropriate friends. The Packenham Mahans usually went to London each year after Christmas for what was known as the season. This was when aristocratic families from across the United Kingdom would descend on the capital for six months when Parliament was in session. There was endless balls, dinners, race meetings and social occasions. The season then drew to a close after a cricket match between two of the most expensive private schools, Harrow and Eton. After this, the life of leisure did not end, but instead it shifted to the countryside as the hunting season began. Families without estates often travelled to Scotland, while the Packenham Mahans obviously returned to Strokestown, where the house had an enormous stable block incorporated into its southern wing. Oshin brought me into this room, which is remarkable. Well, we are now in the biggest room of the stables. So there were like huge extensive stables in the estate, However, this is the oldest one, the, what we have come to refer to as the vaulted stables. Um, and that's for one very specific reason, which is it has this beautiful, almost crazily out of place, vaulted ceiling. So it, like, it's quite tall, there's a row of pillars in the middle of the room, and there's these sweeping vaulted arches above us. 
One visitor to the house famously referred to it way back when as an equine cathedral. And it is like a cathedral. You can hear the echo um, in this space. After we came out into the stable yard, Ushin reflected on the isolation of the Pakan and Mahan family from the surrounding community. Riding, hunting was the core of the social life in a house like this. And you know, that's also connected to the fact that they're not really engaged in the cultural life of their area, right? They're kind of, you know, they're kind of alienated from that. They don't really, they're not popular, certainly not. And they're not, certainly the people in this house, obviously it was different with, you know, someone like Douglas Hyde and uh, like uh, the French, Percy French or something like that. But this particular house, they were not engaged in like the Gaelic revival or the sort of traditional music or any of that kind of stuff didn't interest them. So, you know, and obviously this isn't an area where they could go see operas or whatever they wanted to see. So the, the, the main outlet for kind of social life, for seeing people was hunting. That's kind of how they related to the area they lived in, was going out and hunting animals. After everything you've heard so far, it's going to come as no surprise that Olive didn't go to school in Strokestown, or Ireland for that matter. During her early years, she was educated in Strokestown Park House by a governess, but in her teenage years, she was sent to a private school, Bentley Priory, which was located in Harrow-on-the-Hill. This school was specifically for children from families like her own, drawn from across the empire. Some of Olive's peers in this school had travelled from as far away as Shanghai in China and Madras in India. This education, and indeed her entire life up to this point, was designed to prepare Olive for a very clear path in life. When her education was completed, she would then begin to think of marriage into a family similar to her own. The first step towards this took place when she turned 18, when she was presented to London society in a series of balls and social occasions, which culminated in being presented at court to King George and Queen Mary. Debuting, or being a debutante, as it was known, was a rite of passage for aristocratic women that signified they had come of age. Each year, debutantes received extensive coverage in the British press. However, in 1912, Olive didn't feature, given her family did not have the titles, power and wealth of other debutantes, such as Emma Thine, who was the daughter of the Marquis of Bath. Nevertheless, her parents organised a ball for Olive at the Ritz in London on Friday, April 25th, 1912. At this event, Olive had officially come of age. She was considered an adult and focus began to shift rapidly towards marriage. She would obviously marry someone from her own class, but even within this small pool, the match would be carefully chosen. Olive was an only child and therefore the heir to the house and everything her family owned. So her parents would want someone of an equal status. However, the Packenham mans weren't necessarily the attractive in-laws they had once been. Olive herself was surely aware of it by this point, but there were major changes underway in Irish society at the time that would have a huge bearing on her life. No one could have foreseen the complete demise of the Irish aristocracy in 1912, but the tide of history was already running against them. In the decades following the famine, tenants had organised into unions of a kind and began to demand protections and rights. This had led to a major clash between tenants and landlords like the Packen and Mahans in the late 1870s. While this conflict, known as the Land War, would rumble on for decades, by the 1880s it was clear things were changing. Martin Fagan, the archivist in Strokestown, explains the changes that were underway in these years. Then post-famine, you have the beginning of the end of the power and wealth and political power of the 
landlord classes. And up the middle comes this strong Catholic farmer class. And they kind of, um, financially, they're, they become more and more economically dominant. And then politically, then they become far more dominant. By the time you get to the 1890s, many of these estates are sold off. By the time Olive was born, the British government were increasingly concerned about the political aspirations of these farmers and resolved to settle what was called the land question in the hope that the growing demands for Irish independence would lose momentum. To this end, they offered favourable loans to small tenant farmers to buy their farms from landlords like the Pakenham Mahans. Now this seemed like a perfect solution. Landlords were going to get a decent price for their estates, which were increasingly becoming a headache given the rising tenant demands. So it was in 1905 that the Pakenham Mahans followed lots of other Irish landlords and took the momentous decision to sell most of the Strokestown Park estate. This was an extremely complex process and the long drawn out negotiations lasted right through Olive's childhood, only being resolved around 1912. While this resulted in a huge cash injection into the family's bank accounts, Olive's position in the world was going to be far less certain than that of her ancestors. Families like hers, known for their extravagant lifestyles, would have to be extremely careful now how they spent their money. Their major asset, their vast land holding, was now gone and gone forever. This dynamic unquestionably influenced the man who Olive eventually married. Edward Stafford King Harmon was the son to another large estate in North Roscommon, Rockingham outside Boyle. Given both families faced an uncertain future, it was agreed that by consolidating their two estates, they would have a better chance of surviving the uncertain future that lay ahead. Now, while such cold calculations are not exactly the mood music for a romantic match, the marriage was something of a fairy tale. Olive was 20 and Edward was 23, so they were of a similar age. They had known each other since childhood. They both shared the same identity, Anglo-Irish aristocrats. And perhaps, crucially, the two seemed to have genuinely loved each other. Their engagement was announced in April 1914 in advance of a big London wedding that summer. While the two were from Roscommon, their social circles were rooted in London. So on July the 4th, 1914, Olive married Edward Stafford King Harmon in the Guards Chapel in Wellington Barracks, London. The location was selected because Edward was a serving soldier in the Irish Guards Regiment. A guard of honour was provided by his regiment and then the wedding party retired to Pond Street, the residence of the Pakenham Mahans. Olive was 20 and life, generally speaking, was going pretty much as her parents would have anticipated from the day she was born. However, it's often the case that people can't see great change as it approaches and while everything seemed normal, time was already running out on this aristocratic world Olive had been brought up in. The 1914 season would, in retrospect, be considered the last of its kind. The world was about to change very fast. If you're enjoying this episode, there's going to be bonus content in the extra show for supporters on Patreon and Acast+. You can hear more from Oshin and Martin in that episode, and it features a range of extra content about life in houses like Strokestown Park House. It's really fascinating. You can find that and tons more of bonus material at patreon.com forward slash Irish podcast. That's patreon.com forward slash Irish podcast. Not long after the wedding, the couple returned to Ireland. However, they didn't go to Strokestown Park House. They went to what was Olive's new home, Rockingham where Edward had been born and the centre of the estate he was due to inherit. 
On that night, there were celebrations to mark Olive's arrival that echoed the events that had taken place when she had been born. Over 60 years later, Olive still remembered that night. I remember we got out of our car. We walked around the walls of Rockingham and we saw the bonfires all over the county. Great celebrations. In recalling these events, she neglected to mention the storm clouds that were gathering across Ireland that July. There was a general feeling that the island was drifting towards a civil war that was unstoppable, one that had been brewing since 1912 but was now imminent. This was over the issue of home rule, a limited form of self-government that had gained support among the Irish population since the 1870s. It had long been assumed that no British Parliament would grant the measure, but after the 1910 election, the Irish Home Rule Party entered government and it suddenly became clear home rule was imminent. Irish unionists who opposed the measure created militias in their heartland of Ulster, pledging to resist home rule by all means, including violence. Repeated attempts at conciliation failed, and by the summer of 1914, a civil war between the Irish volunteers who supported home rule and the Ulster volunteers seemed inevitable. For Olive, this carried grave risks. While her father Henry or her husband Edward were not prominent political figures, Both were members of the Conservative Party, which supported the cause of unionism and many considered to be the root cause of the general crisis in Ireland. In the event of war and a polarised political landscape, they could easily find themselves targeted. In that summer, there was a strange sense that nothing could be done to stop Ireland drifting into civil war. The Kerry Evening Post captured the mood. This mood of reckless despair, which regards civil war as inevitable, may pass as many other phases have done, but under the placidity of external appearances, the feeling is more pessimistic than it has ever been. Amid these rising tensions, Olive and Edward had wasted no time in starting a family. Indeed, Olive had already fallen pregnant before she had arrived back in Ireland. Had 1914 been a normal year, the couple would have remained in Ireland until the new year of 1915, when they would have returned to London for that year's season, when the cycle of social occasions would begin all over again. However, they were back in the British capital in a matter of weeks when war broke out, but not the war people had anticipated or expected. Five days before they had been married, another crisis had started to build when the heir to the Austrian throne, Archduke Franz Ferdinand, had been shot dead in Sarajevo. Over the following weeks, attention remained focused on events in Ireland, but the situation in Eastern and Central Europe had deteriorated week by week. As the Austro-Hungarian Empire demanded vengeance from Serbia, where the assassination had taken place, a series of military alliances quickly dragged in all the major powers. By August 3rd, the German Empire was invading Belgium and France, and the following day, the British Empire was at war with Germany. Plans for home rule in Ireland were immediately shelved as Britain mobilised for war. This meant that the long-anticipated Irish civil war was averted, temporarily at least. However, while many in Ireland slept easier in those early days of August 1914, they had little idea what the future held in store for them. This war, the First World War, was going to change the world forever. In next week's episode, we will follow Olive through what would be nearly a decade of war and revolution in Ireland that would transform the country and the world she had grown up in. 
don't forget to check out the bonus podcasts that accompany this series for supporters. They're available at patreon.com forward slash Irish podcast. There's lots of great material in there from Oshin and Martin. That address is patreon.com forward slash Irish podcast. You can also get them on Acast Plus as well. Until next time, Sloan. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.